It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth and I'll be hosting your show this morning. With me in the studio are two of my absolute favorite people to talk to. Um, and I'm not sure I'll get a word in edgewise, but I'm going to try really hard. We have Jeffrey Neal, um, who is, people mostly know Jeff Neal as the um, former Chico of DHS for how many years? Uh, about two and a half. Two and a half years, long enough. Um, retired, now a senior vice president at ICF International. He has his own blog, um, Chief HRO blog, and there's a couple of blog posts that um, I read recently that actually was part of the impetus for the show. So, Jeff, welcome back. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And Tom Devine, another very, I count him as a very good friend of mine. Tom Tom and I have been in the same space for about the same amount of time. Tom is the legal director at the Government Accountability Project. We call it GAP, but the GAP that does, the GAP that does not sell clothing. <laughs> we got mixed up sometimes. <laughs> That's right. Tom, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us back here again. It's always good to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. And um, um, you're, you're legal director at GAP, and um, I know that GAP is the um, organization um, that promotes protecting whistleblowers and assists whistleblowers, um, but I'm not sure our listeners know, you know, know that kind of detail about GAP. Can you just give us a brief description of your organization, what they do? Well, you captured our reason to be. We've been around for almost 40 years now, and we represent whistleblowers against retaliation. We investigate their charges to help them make a difference. We're working all the time to try and strengthen the free speech rights that they have and monitor implementation of those reforms to make sure they're genuine. And then we teach. We have a law school clinic with D.C. School of Law and national internship program and write law review articles, books on our lessons learned. And you've been at the heart, Tom, of GAP for a very long time. When I think of GAP, I think of you. Uh, I'm the... I'm the sort of the, the leader on the front lines, uh, but they won't let me touch the management or fundraising. <laughs> we do wonderful work. Um, I think everyone here agrees that it's important in a democracy, in a democratic government, the role of a whistleblower keeping the government honest, I think, is a very important, very important function. The show today is sort of this interesting intersection between some of the work I said that Jeff has done recently um, and what we know Tom, you and I both know has been brewing on the Hill for for a bit now. It feels like the last year in um, considering um, where else to enhance and strengthen whistleblower rights. Um, and I want to start on a topic that it has an intersection with both, and, um, and that's the administrative leave bill that got introduced, um, I guess, in 2016, because that's the name of the bill. It's a Senate bill. It was introduced by Grassley. I'm proud to say that the Senior Executive Association um, worked very closely with Grassley staff in drafting the bill. 
And Jeff, you wrote a blog post recently um, about the bill. Tell us your thoughts. Well, my blog post was about um, was about um, the bill itself and the, the process the bill went through and what I thought about about um, it as a piece of legislation. And what surprised me about it, that, that very pleasantly surprised me about it, was it was a good bill. You know, we've seen some, some federal employee legislation in the last few years that was very sloppy, um, things that, that tried to accomplish something, and instead of doing the very hard work of researching and writing something that, that's, that looks at all the various laws that might come into play, you know, we've seen things that say, notwithstanding any other provision of law, you can do so-and-so. And I'm always very uncomfortable when I see notwithstanding any other provision of law because most people then don't realize how many things are negated by that. This was a, a, a well-thought-out bill. It looked at the problems associated with administrative leave. It looked at the, the ways to address those problems. And it put forth some very reasonable and rational and logical ways to deal with it to try to get administrative leave under control. I was, as I said, pleasantly surprised, somewhere between pleasantly surprised and, and shocked and stunned <laughs> right. that, that what we had coming out of the Congress was a good bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to see more legislation like this. There is a lot that needs to be done with civil service laws and, and policies and practices. And this shows that, that members working across the aisle can actually come up with something good. With, with genuine interest in identifying a genuine problem with a genuine fix as opposed to making a political statement, right. which I think we all can agree has been um, a, much of the noise on the Hill about federal workers. Not all the noise, but much of the noise. Now, when you see somebody... For the last like three to five years. When somebody introduces a bill and they basically spike the ball after they do you know that they're trying to score political points. And this one isn't about scoring political points. It's about dealing with a government issue that's a problem and fixing that problem. Sure. And let me let me tell our listeners what the bill would do. Um, and I sort of feel personally responsible for this legislation occurring because I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2015, but I was representing someone, um, a, 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 um, a federal official, who had been placed on administrative leave for over a year. Um, and Grassley's and his staff had taken interest in it, um, was concerned about how could this be this particular official in the particular job this official had, how could they be on administrative leave under an IG investigation for a year and a half? And um, so the client of mine had already had contact with Grassley's staff and when the client became my client, Grassley staff reached out to me for some legal thoughts. And I was like, what are you talking about? This happens all the time. This is like post 9-11 in our government, because I've been practicing law long enough to remember that I don't think prior to this century in the 1980s and 90s, people were on routinely on administrative leave for eight, nine, 10, 12 months, two years. But after 9-11, where the government felt their role was um, um, much more vital and in your face um, and the role of government workers, it just sort of edged up. And now 
they put people, I said this to grass stuff, they put people on administrative leave all the time. IG investigations no longer take six months. They don't take eight months. They take about a year. So everybody goes on administrative. What are you talking about? So they then said, are you sure? And they said, we're going to ask GAO to look into it. And then GAO issued that report, Jeff, that you noted. It got picked up by the Post. Um, and I was interviewed by the Post reporter. Um, as a, I think Grassley staff must have mm-hmm. sent her to me. And... Um, and gave her a few clients who'd been on, you know, administrative leave when the thing resulted in a 14-day suspension or something like that. So I was very disappointed over the decade with OPM, sort of putting their head in the sand. Um, that was my view. And whenever asked, OPM was like, they're following the rules or we don't have the authority. And Jeff, you you actually in your blog come back to one of the reasons why you like the legislation is because it actually gives OPM a real role. Well, I talked to OPM about the um, the admin leave issue after the GAO report and Lisa Ryan's story in the Post, and um, and so I, I went to them. I said, "Why don't you do something about this? Yeah, you know, it is an issue. It's a problem. Admin leave is out of control." And they they said very clearly, "We do not have the authority to write a regulation on this subject." And they believed, and, and I, I think they're probably right, that they didn't have the authority to control what agencies are doing with respect to admin leave. And if you read the GAO report, you see there are a lot of problems with admin leave. Uh, one is agencies don't even report it accurately. Or you consistently know, across agencies. One Customers of one of the largest payroll providers in the government uh, have all of their holidays reported as admin leave which is, is silly because they're not admin leave days. They're, they're not on days. leave. And so it's, it's difficult to even get a handle on it. But just as you'd seen case after case after case of people being put on long-term admin leave, I had to. Uh, at, at the Department of Homeland Security, I got, I got into a number of discussions with people about why we had folks on admin leave for a year and a half. And they would say, well, you know, we're investigating them. okay. A year and a half? Mm -hmm. You know, when you're investigating a senior executive for a year and a half and you have them on admin leave, you have have thrown away like Mm $400,000 when you look at the cost of pay and benefits. And you you really want to spend $400,000 on this investigation? Well, it's not their money. And And I've always and I've always had this. I've always have to say this to the clients. You know, it's easy. OPM, other people's money. mm -hmm. Bill Bransford. um, tribute to Bill, other people's money. It was always easy to do that. And they always, you know, and of course, I come back to the IGs, they view any person who's the subject of an investigation as someone who's going to come to work and disrupt their investigation. And so they say, we need them out, you know, without regard for the nature of the allegation under investigation, the, the person who they're investigating, et cetera. Um, so I agree um, with you on all those fronts. What I'd like to do, though, because I because I know Tom and I also believe that putting people on admin leave like that was done to penalize them um, and get them out of the workplace for the, other reasons. There was one case I, I came across just last year where someone was put on admin leave and, and called me for advice. And I said, okay, well, what were you put on admin leave for? I don't know. Mm-hmm. The secret. Did you ask? Yeah. Yes. No, our, our government works in secret. They wouldn't tell. They wouldn't tell the guy why he was on admin leave. Eventually, they told him they thought he had committed contract fraud, 
and his belief was he had reported contract fraud. And as a result, he was uh, accused of being the one who committed it and put on admin leave for over a year. Right. And I know Tom wants to jump in um, right now, but we have to take a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to start with Tom because that's a great segue in to what I'm sure he's seen over um, over at Gap in the in the use and abuse of administrative leave. We're going to take our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. With me in the studio is Jeffrey Neal. He's the former Chico at the Department of Homeland Security, now a senior vice president at ICF International. He has his own blog. He's going to give us his blog link um, before we leave him today. And of course, we have Tom Devine. He's the legal director at the Government Accountability Project. We were talking about the Senate Grassley's bill that was introduced um, maybe a month or so ago. Um, actually legislating administrative leave. And I'm curious, Tom, to hear your take, because I assume a lot of people are like, well, what would GAP care about in an administrative leave bill? Well, we care about it because um, it's the easy way out when you want to retaliate, and that makes it all too common uh, to um, pay whistleblowers to gather dust at home. Uh, And, I mean, this is... it's. waste the taxpayers' money, uh, uh, and it's a little bit spineless, too, um, because it's a way without any formal conclusions um, in any direction of paralyzing them for making a difference on whatever they were concerned about and challenging within the agency. It creates a severe chilling effect on the rest of the workforce there when the person who is exposing potential problems vanishes has just disappeared for maybe a year or mm-hmm. more. It's like Eastern Europe. Um, uh, and we've seen it most frequently. Some of the worst abuses have been with respect to security clearances, um, where they don't have any due process rights. The whistleblower, until very recently, didn't have any due process rights, not as token rights, to challenge a retaliatory security clearance action. And while that's pending, which can be two to three years, depending on the agency, um, they're um, exiled to their home to hopefully bounce off the walls, uh, decide that this isn't worth it, and uh, completely um, uh, irrelevant. And you know what Jeff was talking about with um, the person who, who, who claimed to have reported contract fraud and then put under investigation for engaging in contract fraud? That's not an uncommon dynamic at all for yeah. whistleblowers. And um, it creates an opportunity to bypass the merit system uh, and get rid of someone without the muss and fuss of due process. Okay, that's where I wanted to jump in for a moment because you two have your own sort of bailiwicks. Jeff's the you know HR person, human capital. You're you know the whistleblower, mm-hmm. um, you know enlightener here, and I'm the lawyer. And I and I say to the clients, 
I can't tell you how many clients administratively forever. Well, you have no rights. You can't, you have no place to go to get the government to defend the decision to put you on admin leave and challenge whether you should be on it. You are rightless. You are without right. And you're, and when the government banishes you, the government acts, um, it does create shame. Well, and then what happens uh, at the end of that um, process of twisting in the wind? Um, particularly if it's a retaliatory investigation by an office of inspector general, uh, the whistleblower, after just climbing the walls for a year or so, be told, um, we're thinking of making a criminal referral uh, uh, about you, but if you resign, I will just let it go away. And it's a way to force people out of the civil service system uh, without ever even having to make any formal charges mm-hmm. against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you must have been delighted with this bill. Uh, I was. I thought that it was responding to a problem that uh, has occurred in all directions, and it was, I thought that it could be vulnerable to abuse, though. Um, uh, 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 and I was very pleased uh, that the bipartisan group that put it together uh, made administrative leave uh, a personnel action uh, that now can be challenged uh, as a prohibited personnel practice, a violation of the Whistleblower Protection Act if it's abused. Yeah. And I, I remember, Tom, I was telling you that before we went on the show, I remember in the many iterations of the draft bill I saw when all of a sudden it appeared that they were adding placement on administrative leave as a personnel action um, subject to the 12 prohibited personnel practices, including whistleblower reprisal. I was like, oh, that's smart. That was smart for someone to do. Because in my brain, I like quickly went, <laughs> I can see arguing how administrative leave could fit under another one of the list of personnel actions, like an assignment of duties or something like that. But this really made it crystal clear. Yeah, we've been arguing that administrative leave was a violation of the Whistleblower Protection Act in numerous cases, but we don't always get our way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it's, it's uncertain, it's murky, and this bill makes it clear that if this is used for retaliatory purposes, it's illegal. Mm-hmm. One thing that we we'll to clarify for listeners, too, is, is you know, people look at administrative leave and say, okay, what's wrong with that? They send me home. They give me a paid vacation. I get my full pay and benefits. I earn more leave. The media portrayed it that way until Grassley really started making noise and getting GAO involved. Because well, well, what happens is is it's it's not a paid vacation. It's it's not just a paid vacation. It is a paid vacation, but it's it's much worse than than that too, because what happens is let's say for example, I was going to be applying for a promotion in the next couple of months. If I'm on enforced administrative leave. For months, do you really think they're going to seriously consider me for a promotion? If I decide that I'm going to leave and go to another federal agency, if I've been been on admin leave for the last six months and I haven't done anything at all, and they tell the other agency, well, you know, Jeff's been on admin leave for six months, they're not going to pick me. And so what ends up happening is you end up at at best tainting someone's career, and at worst, totally destroying their career. And so it's not just free time off. It's actually something with that arbitrary can do, power that OPM, I agree, didn't really have the authority to regulate. It was well, really it just it was arbitrary power, and you have to wonder how long were they going to get away with this? No, and it's not just um, free time that um, uh, sets back your career, and that's certainly the case. As Jeff was talking, I immediately thought of. 
What about your next security clearance review? You were on administrative leave for over a year. Are you trustworthy and loyal sufficiently to maintain your clearance? Was this a job prerequisite? Well, they put him on hold. That's what they uh, do. They won't adjudicate your security clearance um, five-year update if you're on admin leave. Well, They'll say, whatever that, that issue is that you're on admin leave for, we need to wait for that to get adjudicated. It can, it can put everything off, and then it's a black mark on your record mm-hmm. um, that they had to do that to you. But it's worse than just a career paralysis. Uh, it's it's not a paid vacation. It's being put under professional house arrest. Because uh, you can't you leave, can't leave the home. house to go to the grocery store. can't leave um, house. Um, because if you don't answer the phone when it comes in, you're AWOL. Um, this is designed in many instances to just drive whistleblowers up the wall of their own homes. Yeah, no, I, well, to, and even non-whistleblowers, people who, for whatever reason, they've decided, well, there is no, let's talk about that for a second. Up until, if this bill becomes law, there was no require, legal requirement that whoever decided to exercise whatever this authority is to put you on admin leave had to have some basis, right? There has never really been a requirement. Under the bill, the requirement would be tied back to OPM's um, regulations on the crime provision where you have to show that the person would be a danger to him or herself or government property if they were in the workplace. Um, And then there's this catch-all one that I know the IGs are going to use against employees, which is... um, or to protect other governmental interests, you know, this catch-all, which I'm opposed to. Um, but but they get, by if the bill becomes law, they get, the agencies get, I think, Jeff, it's either five or 10 days. 10 days. 10 days on their own where they can put somebody out for 10 days. After 10 days, then it's the Chico's determination, right? They can extend it for another 30 days. The, the Chico can. That's correct. Um, so that would give them a total of 40 days and they can make several more extensions, but they have to get some higher level review for a total of something around a hundred plus days, which is, um, three to four months. So the IGs haven't been able to investigate anything, right? When was the last time they opened and closed an investigation in four months on anyone? Um, so Ordinarily, that's how I used to see it, Tom. I would see people going on admin leave because an IG opened an investigation on them. Um, and that investigation always is about a year, at least a year now. So you have to wonder um, how, what the IGs are thinking about this and how, that's, how they think that's affecting their, invest, their investigative authority. Well, gee, I just don't know that it um, requires purging someone from the workforce to make make fact-finding about their behavior. I agree with you. Yeah. But that has been the culture of the workplace um, for the last 10 or 15 years. Oh, and that's why it's the easy way out. Uh, this is by introduced by clarifying that there's due process rights against abuse of power, by setting up a process to control administrative leave. This is a good government bill. Uh, they're not that popular lately in, in Congress, but it's bipartisan, well-thought-out, good government bill to deal with a loophole that's uh, enabling retaliation and fleecing the taxpayers at the same time. Yeah. Jeff, any final points on that? Well, a couple of things just to, to point out what the bill does. It does very clearly give authority to OPM to issue regulations and actually requires OPM to issue regulations. It then requires agencies to issue their own policies following the OPM regulations. 
It also sets forth a couple of types of leave that don't exist on the books right now. One is is an investigation and notice type of leave. Which notice is, for in, while you're in a notice period on correct. a proposed um, disciplinary action. And that has very specific limitations. It also says don't just send a person home. You have to decide that they're a danger to other people or to themselves or to the mission or something. You have to have some threat. And it encourages agencies to look at things like telework or other duties that they could assign a person to. Uh, And then it also creates a category of leave around emergencies, which is something that we don't actually have spelled out right now in the law. So it addresses a lot of issues. It does it well. It does it in a bipartisan way. And unlike a lot of what we've seen recently, it doesn't bash federal employees at all. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, the one of the final um, things it does, which both of you point um, sort of touched upon indirectly, was, and I was really surprised to see this out of Congress. You know, like thinking about being the actual federal worker, right? Um, it requires the agency to issue a notice to you if you're going on administrative leave and tell you why. If you look at administrative leave notices across government, Jeff, somebody penned one version in, in an HR office and everybody uses it. It's like, until further notice, you are being placed on administrative leave while we investigate allegations about you. It's the, it's all it ever says. So you have to wonder if in the notice requirement, agencies will take that seriously and be specific as opposed to hiding through, you know, HR double talk. HR double talk? Double talk. There's no such thing as HR double talk. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> its own language. Always, HR, double, HR people are always very clear about everything they do and explain everything <laughs> in great detail. I want to be very clear there's no consensus on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> We are going to take our mid-show break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. With me in the studio is Tom Devine. He's the legal director at the project. You should go on their website. It's a great website. Um, and Jeffrey Neal, who is the former Chico Chief Human Capital Officer um, at the Department of Homeland Security. He's now retired. He's at ICF International. He has his own blog, some of which we've been talking about today. We spent the first part of the show talking about the um, Senate bill, which everybody seems to like. There's a couple of things that I don't particularly like about it, but I agree. 
overall, we're like 95% there, very much needed, hope it passes. Um, but before we spend the, um, the bulk of the end of the show talking about some legislative proposals um, to enhance whistleblower protections and processes, I wanted to talk about something related to that, which is the IG Empowerment Act. It's a bill that Grassley introduced last year. Um, and at the heart of the Empowerment Act are, are provisions that would grant the IG subpoena authority to subpoena former federal employees and compel them to testify in an IG investigation after they're no longer federally employed and compel contractors, federal contractors, to produce information and have their employees <coughs> compelled to testify also in an IG investigation. So I'd like the two of you, I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, I I happen to, Jeff's first. I happen to have written a, a blog post a couple of weeks ago about uh, who runs an agency, the agency head or the IG. And um, I wasn't criticizing the existence of IGs. I was concerned that some people believe that because an IG makes a recommendation, the agency head or agency officials have to immediately jump and implement that recommendation. And IG recommendations... Well, that it's required. Right. And <coughs> required IG recommend, by law. IG recommendations um, are a mixed bag. Some of them are great. Some of them are very good common sense management decisions. Some of them are policy decisions that an agency head may just simply disagree with. And the president appoints an agency head to run uh, an agency and an IG to have an investigative and advisory role. And the, the, the IG Act does give, give IGs the authority to make recommendations on policies, but they're very clearly spelled out as recommendations, not dictates on policies. But what happens is when an agency doesn't follow an IG recommendation and something goes wrong, OPM's a great example, then everyone goes beating up on them and says, well, you should have listened to your IG. And I think we need to be, be clear that, that IGs have a very important role to play. Uh, their investigative role is critical. Their policy recommending role is, is a very different role, though, and agencies don't need to do everything their IG recommends they do. So I, I, I think we need to make certain that IGs have independence and that they can carry out their statutory responsibilities. But I do not want to see us get to a point where every time the IG, who may, may, who may know very but little about the But we're definitely getting there. The Hill, um, the Hill's, the, the, the con congressmen and senators love um, using the IGs against agency management. So There's I, pressure on agency management indirectly that way. So if I've been the IG in an agency for the last 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years, and there are lots like at of, OPM, and there are lots of problems in the agency. At what point does the Congress summon me, the IG, to testify about why, in the ten or fifteen or twenty or twenty-five years I've been there, a lot of problems haven't been fixed? And we don't see that happening. We really see it being see it being used to beat up on the leadership of the agency, not to beat up on the IGs who may or may not be complicit in the problems in an agency. Tom. Um, and it's interesting that Senator Grassley hasn't pulled his punches at all uh, in oversight of IGs that were 
getting out of control, that we're abusing their authority. And so you kind of wonder, why is he putting a bill together like this that gives them um, more authority to do the right thing? And I think he'd like to have it both ways. And the solution isn't to um, restrict them from uh, basically to give a free ride to anyone who betrays the public trust but then resigns from the federal government. Or I don't think the solution is that, well, we'll hold federal employees accountable but not contractors. Um, There's too much overlap there. They're doing the same work. There should be consistent rules for holding people responsible. But you're right. It's very vulnerable to abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I think your insight is well taken. Mm -hmm. It um, makes me concerned. My most popular clients right now are people blowing the whistle um, on uh, abuses of power by the IGs or challenging retaliation by the IGs, including um, IG mm-hmm. managers who were trying to play it straight mm-hmm. and not play political games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think that probably the, the right balance is to put strict controls on the exercise mm-hmm. of the fact-finding authority, uh, but they probably need it. Yeah, well, Tom, Tom, I can't remember if it's about a year now that Maybe it's a little bit more since we were on a show together and we maybe off off mic talked about the growing concerns that we had with the other guests from Pogo, if you recall, about the um, what we were seeing was a growing sense of abuse of power by the IGs for whatever reason. Is it for a political reason? Was it for media attention? Whatever the reason was. Um, and it for me, as I look at the last year or so, I, I, I've gotten more concerned about that. I think the American public in general is concerned about the powers of the police and how they're being used today in our country. It concerns me that we would give the IGs the authority to compel citizens to testify to the government blanketly. That concerns me. If there's a criminal investigation, they can always assert their Fifth Amendment right, and they have a protection against the government. But if they, if it isn't a criminal investigation, then how do they? Why? I, 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 I'm. I don't know the Constitution good enough to say. Do they have other constitutional protections that the government can't come in and say, "I'm ordering you to turn a company to turn over all these confidential records," like Apple. The government's being ordered right now. The government is ordering Apple right now to create a software that doesn't even exist. Um, and while all the political people running for office say, of course, whatever, you know, terrorists, you know, the, the, the third rail of politics are veterans and terrorists today. Um, I, I, I think about what we become when the government can order us to do things and w- what the legal boundaries are. So that concerns me. Like subpoenas normally issue in criminal investigations where the rights of criminal defendants um, are very well established. But what if it's not a criminal case? Like when I read this bill from Grassley, it's not necessarily subpoenas in criminal proceedings. Clearly they have subpoena right in criminal proceedings. Why else would they need a subpoena right if it, if it weren't for the non-criminal cases? Well, my concern when I read it was was exactly that. I, I think it opens a can of worms, and it doesn't necessarily provide a solution. So let's say Betty Lou is a federal employee. Betty Lou has, reti- has retired. 
the IG wants to talk to Betty Lou about something. That's not criminal. Um, are they going to have to disclose whether it's criminal or administrative? If they're going to compel testimony and it's administrative, are they going to then give some grant of immunity so that administrative preceding testimony can't be used against them in a criminal case? If they're not going to give them immunity and they wouldn't let someone assert a Fifth Amendment right, then are, are you saying that we can cloak an investigation in the, 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 you know, under the guise of an administrative process and then and compel testimony and then use that testimony in a criminal proceeding and therefore, you know, thereby deny you your fifth or Amendment debarment rights. proceeding. Could you imagine, you know, because when you think about the subpoena mm-hmm. authority, it's that Grassley proposes on contractors. So what if they're compelled to turn over certain information and they're in a and but they're in a in a um, concurrent debarment proceedings, and, which isn't criminal. And if they're compelled to turn it over, you know, it's to, you know, um, the balance of rights and powers, I'm not, I think has not been thought out in this bill. I think, I think it was pandering to what the media had for a while um, reported was there'd be some investigation of a high level senior executive and the senior executive would retire and the IG lost access to the employee because they were no longer an employee. And people on the Hill got very mad that people could resign um, without being fired and they could resign to escape an investigation. And I think that's what this is a response to. And I don't think it's well thought out. I think conceptually it's it's well taken. Um, As a taxpayer, I get mad when... Somebody who's um, been abusing authority, engaging corruption, is off scot-free because they resigned. Um, uh, but it's so vulnerable to abuse. Um, IGs are all too frequently, I, I think more common than any other institution in the government, engaging in retaliatory investigations uh, of whistleblowers uh, or people who are just out of political favor there. And uh, you don't you don't give law enforcement authorities a blank check. It's going to be abused if you do. And, you know, what concerns me um, about this is that I think the goal was to increase the independence to help them to be more effective. But um, if that's really the goal, how about going after the real threats to independence? Like at the Justice Department, they won't turn over documents. My, my favorite, my favorite, my favorite part of that angle, Tom, is that's the FBI. You know, you have like the king of law enforcement in our country, the FBI, and they're like, no, we're not we're not going to share this with you. It's it's them. Twice they've they've said no to the IG. If we want to empower them, let's give them the authority to do their job where others it's beyond any credible debate that we need them in. Uh, if there's going to be more independence, I'd like them to have more independence from the political power bases of the agencies. Uh, consistently in these cases where we're representing IG whistleblowers, the dynamics of it was there was an acting inspector general who was seeking the agency head's um, support to be nominated as the permanent IG. So they didn't want to do any investigations that could create political enemies among the big boys. Uh, And uh, they went after the whistleblowers who were playing it straight. Um, I'd like to see the agency heads segregated from the process of nominating the IGs uh, at their departments because, well, it's officially from the president, 
the reality is uh, they're part of a team with the agency chief, mm-hmm. and that's not independent. Mm-hmm. You know, two, well, it's pandering. It creates pandering. Two, yeah. two things I'd like to, to comment on this. Uh, one is on this issue of, uh, of compelling testimony from contractors. You know, when, when you look at most federal contracts, the work products belong to the government, not to the company. That's right. And so if you contract with someone to do something, they produce a product, the IG says, you have to give that product to me. You may run into a problem with your client where your client says, no, you don't own this information. It's not yours to give. And I think the IG should start first with their own agency that actually owns the work product. I think that's Tom's point. And and don't go to industry Mm -hmm. and say, hey, you help us because our agency won't cooperate. Mm -hmm. I think that's putting the onus on the wrong people. The second is on this idea of people getting off scot-free. So let's talk about that for just a second. So let's say, Deborah, you're a federal employee now. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're under investigation. Sorry, you quit. What what did we want to accomplish by going after you in, in a disciplinary process? So do I want to punish you or do I want to, want to correct the behavior? If I want to punish you, I can't kill you. I can fire you. That's the worst I can do to you. I can fire you and, and, and bar you from federal employment forever. That's the worst <laughs> I can do to you. So you leave. So now you're out of government. I can't fire you anymore. I don't have the statutory authority to, to take away your retirement. So why do I, why am I so concerned well, that, you've missed that, a step. that you got away? Yeah, you've missed a step. You've missed, you're in discipline. Tom would take you back to investigation that the gov- that the people, the taxpayers have a right to know whether something went wrong okay. um, in, you know, on their dime. You know, and I, I and what I would say is, in most instances, the government has the ability to collect a lot of information about that without necessarily hearing from the employee, him or herself. That there's enough residual evidence around um, that that they could um, formulate some view of what happened. Historically, though, I kind of blame the IGs, although I don't want them to think I'm completely against them, because in the last part of the show, I do want to talk about um, my concern that they're gonna, their role will be usurped in the whistleblower process. Um, but I blame this mostly on IGs, because they voluntarily stop these investigations when the employee resigns. They don't have to, but they do. Um, and I, in all fairness, it's probably an issue of resources. Jeff's point. We got the person out. We got, we got, we got, that was a very important goal. But I see Tom's point about the other goal, which is what happened? And shouldn't the public know? Yeah, I, I think you're right, Deborah, that they can cope and they, they shouldn't just give up if the person resigns. But it is pretty crippling. What other branch of law enforcement um, um, is defenseless against the target being declared off limits because they quit. <laughs> uh, now, if they, in, if they betrayed the public trust, um, they shouldn't be um, beyond uh, mm-hmm. accountability because they resigned. And I, and I think the IGs certainly have the power to continue investigations. It's compelling the production of evidence in a non-criminal case that I 
I don't, I start thinking, you know, I don't know that it's completely thought through. Uh, but I do see your point, Tom. Um, we need to take the final um, commercial break of our show. When we come back, we'll finish up on this one and we'll talk about some of the bills pending um, that would enhance and provide new process for whistleblowers inside the VA. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Um, with me in the studio is Tom Devine. He's the legal director of the Government Accountability Project, and Jeffrey Neal, the former Chief Human Capital Officer, Department of Homeland Security. Um, we've covered some. We've covered a bunch of topics. Bills pending in Congress, um, and I think that you can't can't have a show with Tom Devine from Gap and not talk about the several pieces of legislation pending both in the House and the Senate that would provide additional whistleblower process um, and um, accountability um, at the VA. Tom, tell us about, um, in a nutshell, what's what's out there and what it would do. Well, there's uh, basically two tracks. The House... Uh, uh, under Chairman Miller, passed uh, a VA Accountability Act. Uh, Senator uh, Kirk has been the lead sponsor for a similar bill in the Senate. Senator Johnson um, uh, has put a, a little bit narrower version of it. Uh, and the gist of these bills is making it drastically easier, uh, almost automatic, uh, reducing the discretion not to take disciplinary action against agency officials for retaliation. Uh, and it removes a lot of their intra-agency due process rights. Um, um, originally, the bills were structured to remove um, uh, due process rights outside of the agencies, too. And we protested very strongly about that. It's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So they still will have access to the MSPB, but the agency will have to act. That's kind of combined with um, a number of provisions that will help whistleblower protection, whistle, that'll help whistleblowers. One is a requirement that their supervisors respond to their disclosures uh, expeditiously within a few days, actually. They have four. To, four days. They <laughs> four have to days. deal with their disclosures. Um, uh, the, the second is that um, there be um, mandatory discipline if they're for final agency action. And the third, and the thing that probably to me is the most significant in terms of retaliation is that makes it a personnel action to engage in a retaliatory investigation. Uh, and that's the most common knee-jerk form of harassment. It sets the stage for everything else. And under the Whistleblower Protection Act, it's been interpreted as a loophole until the other shoe drops. That um, during the period of the retaliatory investigation, you're defenseless. And then you can complain about it after you've been proposed for termination. And this would allow you to challenge the reprisal in the bud. So 
we like some of the whistleblower protection uh, in disclosure provisions. Jeffrey, any thoughts? I, I, th- I think we need to make certain that whistleblowers are protected. I, I was a little concerned about some of the, the things like the time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone files a complaint with their supervisor, the supervisor would have four days. And I think it's hysterical that Congress would legislate a number of days. The I, micromanaging by Miller's committee I, I, over the VA is just, it's, it's, it, it's gotten so ridiculous. You laugh out loud. Can, You're like a statute that says supervisor is four days. That's like kind of funny. I can understand wanting to put a set number of days in there so something couldn't just be stoned. Four? Four is kind of short because if you're talking about something that's a really substantive issue, what you're saying is the supervisor basically has to drop everything they're doing and focus solely on this one issue. And and while there are a great many whistleblowers in government who who really bring a lot of things to the surface that need to be brought to the surface, there are also people who file frivolous complaints. And I could to obstruct, see some, I to could obstruct see, some um, um, action by their supervisor. Um, so let's go back. Throw up a roadblock. Let's go back to our previous discussion about IGs. You know, the IG is is uh, you know is investigating me, and so what do I do? I file a whistleblower complaint against my boss, or against the IG or against somebody to try to, to distract attention from me. Um, and then, you know... Or create a legal avenue of protection. So, so I think you have to... Th- there's a balance in there on mm-hmm. whistleblower protection that's important and an agency being able to, to carry out its mission, which, which is also important. And I don't know if this bill has, has struck the right balance. Yeah, I don't think it has. I think, it, I think my concern was... The le- levels of review, Tom, it would just hamstring management. I could see AFGE um, using its rank-and-file members to obliterate supervisors they don't like. AFGE has been um, very spooked by this legislation. They're not supportive of it, uh, or they haven't been supportive of it uh, in their conversations with me. Because they don't want to file their complaints with management? I'm not sure. I think it's because That's my they're, they're afraid that the loss of due process rights will backfire. Uh, and I really well, there agree is no with loss you in folks. the bill. Uh, pardon? There is no loss of due process. Well, in the interagency. Um, there's, there's the, the, the normal process of the Civil Service Reform Act has been trumped in cases of a, 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 even a preliminary determination of whistleblower retaliation. And that's what they're afraid could backfire. And I think there's a, a real concern about that. But that's why we push so hard for MSPB appeal rights. But when you folks talk about, you know, four days is silly for the supervisor to have to respond. Um, first, um, I put it in perspective. It doesn't mean they're they're deciding what to do in four days. It means they have to basically acknowledge uh, and say we're going to deal with oh. this issue in four days. It's like oh. the freedom of information. Got it. Uh, I didn't interpret I'm it that way. I'm not too worried either about um, enforcement actions under there. There's there's no provision to enforce the four-day limit. And it's well, then they like file complaints that you didn't respond in four days and you go down that. Um, you can make noise about it, but it's like, you know, you're entitled to a decision from an administrative board in 30 days and you wait two years. And um, uh, so... I, I don't think that's realistic, and I think that it should be adjusted. But I, I think it. I think it. It. 
it sets the wrong expectation. If we if we all agree the four days is not workable and that it can hamstring the work of the agency, um, then why create expectations with your rank and file that they're going to get something back in four days? Well, I think that it means that the chain of command has to deal with their concerns, start dealing with their mm-hmm. concern in four days. And that's what I like about this. I, th- I agree with you that it's not a realistic time frame. And I'm grateful that I don't think it's very enforceable. But the concept is valuable. It means that um, an agency chain of command means to deal with the whistleblower's, con- the messenger's concerns instead of uh, ignoring, silencing, or killing the messenger. Uh, and it also says that the organization itself, through the chain of command, should be dealing with problems of fraud, waste, or abuse as part of its normal functioning, rather than forcing the whistleblower to make a disclosure to the IG or the Office of Special Counsel and get a third party involved. Right. Checks and balances should be institutionalized within the organization. And it, after a while, if this if this works, it won't be so much like whistleblowing. It'll be like saying, boss, we got a problem, and not being ignored. So we have one minute left. I need, I need to make this five-second point. I'm giving it to Jeffrey. Thank you for making for clarifying that because um, in the beginning of the show, before the show, I said I think it, it think it takes away an important function of the IG. And then you made this point to me, which I think is very interesting. So I have to rethink my view of this bill based upon that point you made, Tom. I want to thank mm-hmm. you for that. Jeff, we have um, 20 seconds, um, 30 seconds left for your final point on this. I think it's a good idea to strengthen whistleblower protections. I just want to make certain we don't do it in a way that creates more problems and gets in the way of an agency actually carrying out its mission. Yeah. Okay. I think those are the two sides of the coin. Thank well, you. Matt, well, I'll say here, here. I'll be on that side. Right. I think we're all. I think we're all in agreement on that. Thank you both for being on our show today, Tom Devine of Gap, Jeffrey Neal, ICF International. <laughs> 